How wonderful to be gathered with you guys. We're taking our step on the final of these uh, steps that we started all the way back in January called the Faith Path. It began with learning about a God who loved us so much that He gave His Son. And the very first step for all of us to have a relationship with Jesus, to know Him, to, to grow close to Him, that very first step must be believing in Jesus for the free gift of everlasting life. There is no other step to begin that process. We have walked through the other steps since then. We have walked through steps such as growing in your spiritual gifts, spending time in community, understanding grace better, spending time in the Word, getting into a community. I don't know if I said that twice. It's worth saying twice. Getting into a community. And we have learned how these steps that God has given us are not just God kind of turning the tables on us. Some people might almost treat it like that, as, as if saying to you, your eternal life is absolutely free. The gospel is free. You don't have to do a thing. And some people will take those things and turn it and say, ah, but now that you're in, let me tell you all the things you have to do for God. That is not the way it is, is it? Our God who saved us by His grace calls us to grow in our relationship with Him by His grace, by the fact that from the moment you believed in Him, you were righteous, you were holy, you were His child, His son, His daughter. You had the promise of life that never ends from the moment you believed. And everything that you grow in, in your life, you grow in because of what God has already given to you. And, and it is merely us learning to trust, to know and to trust and to live our lives in light of what He has already made true of you and of me. That's a much different way of understanding it. It's a difference between someone saying, I'm going to give you this $300,000 car, but it's a stick shift. And if you don't know how to drive a stick shift, you'd better learn or else you might lose it and I might take it back. Or saying, I'm going to give you this $300,000 stick shift car and it's yours. And guess what? It's yours regardless. But if you learn how to drive stick, then you're going to have a really fun time with it. There's a big difference. That's what every one of these steps has been about. Not all of us necessarily understand all of this, though, right away. Don't, do we? Sometimes we trust in Jesus, we get that free gift of the gospel, but we don't learn to understand the grace of God as fully as God wants us to on our own. And sometimes we might go for a long period of time, months, years, decades, without really finding ourselves growing to understand God and His love for us and what it means to live in light of that on our own. Which is why this final step of the path is called helping others to follow Jesus. Does anyone know the, the biblical term used for coming alongside of another to help them in their walk? their spiritual walk? 
There's a spiritual term that sometimes people will use. Jesus used it for 12 of his followers. Discipleship. And someone, I think, pulled out like a Greek word on me back there, paraclete. That was great. That was, that was even smarter than I was. <laughs> I love it. Got some Greek scholars in here. Discipleship is what I was thinking of. Now, when you hear the word discipleship, it can kind of be intimidating because I don't know about you, but when I hear the word disciple, what comes to mind is Jesus and the 12 people who followed him. And if I think about myself making a disciple out of someone else and being a discipler to someone else, that kind of makes me feel like I'm supposed to be like Jesus. And, and I don't know about you. I don't feel like Jesus. <laughs> I don't feel mature like him. I don't feel like I have his knowledge. I don't feel like I have his understanding. And it can be intimidating for us to think about sometimes. But it'll help us to understand what exactly the idea behind discipleship is. What exactly is discipleship? Maybe if we understand what it is, it'll be a a little bit easier for us to understand why you and I, every one of us, are called to be people who disciple others. Every one of us. That means Al, you. Patricia, you. Connor, you. Every one of us. Jean, every one of us called to make disciples. And it's exemplified, it is shown in this verse, these verses in 2 Timothy chapter 2. Verse 2 is the key one, but I'm going to start in verse 1 because it's really incredible. Paul is writing to his disciple here, someone that as he was going out planting churches, he said, this is someone that I want to bring along with me and I'm going to have him come with me. I'm going to spend time teaching him. I'm going to let him see as I am preaching the word and starting these churches and developing these churches. And he began to see Timothy grow so much that he began to trust in Timothy to say, as he would plant a series of churches in an area, he would say, Timothy, I'm going to move on to the next area. I'm going to leave you behind to establish these churches so that they are strong, healthy churches that can sustain themselves even when you and I are gone. That's what he called for Timothy. Second Timothy is actually the very last letter that Paul wrote out of all the letters when he was in prison for the second time. And this t- first time he thought he might get in, he, he might die, he might get out. Second time he knows he's going to die. And so this last letter he writes are his last written words that we have as scripture written to his disciple Timothy. Some of the most important things he wants Timothy to know. And in chapter 2, verses 1 through 2, we read this. So you, my child, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And entrust what you heard me say in the presence of many others as witnesses. Entrust it to faithful people who will be competent to teach others as well. 
Do you see the discipleship in here? Do you see? I wonder if you can find all four generations of disciples in these verses. All four generations. There are four of them. First generation, the one who did the discipling first was Paul, right? Paul is the one who calls himself me. He's the author. He gets to do that. Paul is the one who did not just say, I'm going to go out and I'm going to plant lots of churches. I'm going to preach to lots of them. I'm going to get lots of people gathering together. He said, I need, I must spend time with individual people so that they will grow in the grace and the knowledge of Jesus Christ. So that they will be able to help others as well. So Paul came along as that first generation. And he, in this case, was teaching the one that we call you. And his name is Timothy. He brought Timothy along with him in this way, as we already talked about. Watching him plant churches, helping him to preach the gospel, helping Paul eventually to, to be the one that is settling these churches and establishing them as healthy bodies of Christ. But Paul didn't just say, man, I really need to find someone to pour my life into, to pour my knowledge, my relationship with God into and help him come along. Paul didn't just say, I'm going to pass it on to Timothy and then my job is done. No, Paul had a long-term vision. He said, I don't just want to take what I have and give it to one person. He says, I want what I have to continue. So I am going to teach Timothy and then I'm going to tell Timothy to pass it on to people. Third generation. To other people, Paul had a long-term vision saying, guess what? What you have, you need to pass on. It's like the difference between the Sea of Galilee and the Dead Sea. Sea of Galilee was higher up in elevation and it emptied out into the Jordan River, which flowed closer to the earth, down in elevation as it flowed south, all the way to the Dead Sea. Now, the Sea of Galilee had water that came into it from the occasional rains to some streams that were flowing in. And it also flowed out. And the Sea of Galilee was one of the major sources of food through the fish that lived in that sea, in the Sea of Galilee. It was a place of life. It was a healthy sea, healthy lake. We might call it a lake, being so close to the Great Lakes. But as it flowed out into the Dead Sea and came to the Dead Sea, the Dead Sea is such an incredibly low place of elevation, is one of the lower points on the earth. And guess what? When water came into the Dead Sea, it didn't have anywhere to go except through evaporation. Water would flow into it, but it had no way to flow out. And guess what? It just grew saltier and saltier and saltier until it could not sustain life. It just received and received and received and took in and took in and it never was able to pour out again. And that was to the detriment of the Sea of Galilee because it never tried to pour out. You guys know the difference between a pond that has water flowing into and out of it and a pond, a pond that just sits there, Right? You don't, you don't want to swim in the ladder, do you? 
Paul is saying that to Timothy. He says, I have poured my life into you and I need you for the next generation and also for your sake, Timothy, to pour into people. But guess what? Paul didn't just want to say, I have a long-term vision that I wanted to be passed on. He says, Timothy, I don't just want you to take what I've learned and pass it on to the next person. He says, Timothy, I want you to pass on my vision as well. I want you to tell the people that you teach that they need to be faithful and competent to teach the next generation as well. This is what discipleship is. Now, it might be an intimidating term because we don't say the word disciple very often in our English language. But there are other similar words which have similar concepts that might be more familiar to us. Words like coaching. When you think of coaching, especially in, in sports, that is a form of athletic discipleship. Did you know that? Someone who comes along this, say, a basketball team, of uh, these kids that are saying, I think we need to get it into the hoop, and I think the ball bounces, and says, let me help you. Let me help you learn how to dribble. Not to dribble like this the way that Adam does. Not to throw like this. You know? To actually work on your form, to work on being a better player and working together as a team so that you can begin to win games and be a good basketball team. Coaching is a form of athletic discipleship. Or there's mentoring. Mentoring is kind of like, especially tutoring, mentoring can be like athletic discipleship. Uh, athletic, academic discipleship. You know, there, I, I went to a, a school once in Madison where as I was going to a class, I was part of a class that had, it was macroeconomics, it was freshman year, it was a class everyone had to take pretty much, and there I sat in a class with 500 other students. 500 students taking this class. Now the professor probably knew a lot, but all he could really do was just speak. And all that he ever really spoke just came right out of the book. And it didn't take me long to understand that, you know, I could probably get as much out of just reading the textbook as I could out of the guy. There wasn't that much more I could get. When I attended a different school, Ethnos 360 Bible Institute, in fact, man, let me tell you, there were some guys in there. These classes dropped from 500 down to about 30 in the class I was in. And in this class, men like Thomas Freeman, men like Jason Weaver, would, they would teach, and they, but they would also be able to interact. They would be able to have someone come along and, and pause them and say, I don't get this teacher. And he'd say, great question, let me answer this for you. And guess what? With that form of interactive teaching, it suddenly became that much better. I understood things so much better than I could before. And then there was another class I went to where I studied. There was uh, some classes I had under this man, Dr. John Niemela, uh, Finnish for, for, uh, for extra credit points for you guys. I had some classes with this man where I was the only student. This is a brilliant man. He like speaks 
fluently in four different languages and he roughly knows about three to five others to varying degrees. He is just smarter than any five versions of me put together. And I got to sit under him, just sit across from a table from him, and he was talking to me. And there's just something special about having that guy come alongside me and talk with me one-on-one. And there was something wonderful, incredible about that for my life. There is something special about a mentoring, tutoring relationship. And then, of course, there's apprenticeship. Those of you who are in the trades or know people who are in the trades, know that if you get a good mentor in your work, someone who doesn't just say, here, go and fetch stuff for me from the truck, but says, here, do you see what I'm doing with these wires? Do you see how I can find what the problem is here? Do you hear that sound when I knock on this pipe? Whatever it is that that these people do that are beyond me. There is something special about someone who comes alongside someone else and says, let's just do this together. Let's work together. This is what discipleship is, guys. This is discipleship. And when we think about this in our lives, in our understanding of this, when we consider what is discipleship, it's not that complicated. We make it so complicated. Because so much of us, our only understanding of church is I come here on Sunday morning and I stand up when I'm told to stand, I sit down when I'm told to sit, and then someone who is probably just super smart because he went to school and learned about this stuff, he says things that I don't think that I could say or whatever it is. Guys, I'm not actually that smart. There are things that you guys are each of you brilliant in that I just will never be able to understand. I'm sorry. I will never be able to fix my lawnmower. I will never be able to. I just is beyond me. Just handling things like that. I am so stupid when it comes to that. There's a million things that I am stupid in. (laughs) This is just the thing that I happen to have focused my studies on. But when it comes to your walk with Jesus, guess what? You, each and every one of you, you have lived life You have experienced things. You know when you face a pain and you say, no one gets this pain that I am going through? No one understands? Guess what that means when you come out on the other side of it saying God is faithful? That means you have a special, unique insight into the faithfulness, the love, and the power of God that other people don't have. Don't you wish that other people would then be able to understand this aspect of God's love the way that you had to learn it the hard way? How many of you can think of someone who at some point, be it a Sunday school teacher, be it a parent or an aunt or an uncle or a friend, someone who has come alongside you. And whether it's over a day or a conversation or over a relationship of years, just dramatically helped you to understand Christ in a way that you wouldn't have without them. Anyone? Is there anyone that can think of that? Man, I hope that is true for each of us. This is what discipleship is, friends. And God gives you and me 
Not the command like you better do this. He gives you the opportunity and the joy of taking what you have and passing it on to others. Now, why is it that we do discipleship? Why is it? I'm not going to go through all of these verses in depth. You know what? I'm going to ask you guys if you would just go ahead and pull up these verses. I want to see if anyone's willing to stand up and read these verses loud and clear when the time comes. If you can just do that, I'm going to ask if you can find these verses. All right. You want to go ahead and find the first one, Brian? All right. Sounds good. The first, there are three main reasons why it is good for us to be involved in discipleship. The first one, actually, let's go ahead and pull all of them up now so people can search for the next ones as they want. The first one is because of the command. The second reason is for their sakes. And third reason is so we're not running in vain. First one, can I have uh, someone, you want to stand up and loudly read Matthew chapter 28, verses 18 through 20, loud voice so everyone can hear? And Jesus came and spit unto them, saying, All power is given unto me in heaven and in earth. Go ye therefore and teach all nations, in all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to That is great. Thank you. And you had the hard version with all the these and thous and yees, too. That's awesome. Way to go. Why do we do discipleship? Because we are told to. Because Jesus said, I am going. And while I go, there's something I'd like you to do for me. Can you take what you know of me and make disciples of all nations? Take everyone that's out there. They need to know about me. Not just trust in me for eternal life. They need to deeply know me. And that's the job of each and every one of us, not just a couple. To take what we are learning about Jesus and passing it on to others. Second reason is for their sake. Someone want to read 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 9-11? through 11? Nice, loud voice. Anyone? Thanks. And because I preach this good news, I am suffering and have been chained like a criminal. But the word of God cannot be chained. I am willing to endure anything if it will bring salvation and eternal glory in Christ Jesus to those God has chosen. This verse 11. Hmm. If we die with him, we will also live with him. Awesome. Thank you. Did you hear that? Paul is saying... I, have suff- I am willing to suffer, to experience all kinds of suffering, to suffer all things. Why? For their sakes. For the sakes of those who would hear. So that they might hear and know about the love of God, that they might have salvation. He's not just saying, I'm going to go out and I'm going to tell people. He says, I'm going to tell people until it hurts. I'm not just going to tell people until it hurts. I'm willing to suffer anything if, if you will trust in Jesus because I love you that much. 
Why do we disciple? We disciple for the people that we are reaching out to. Third reason, so we're not running in vain. Philippians chapter 2, verses 14 through 16. Someone want to read that? Thank you, Shelby. Doesn't see you don't see the f- discipleship in there at first, do you? But here, how about this? Paul started this church. He started that church, and he was saying to them, Philippians, Philippian church, hold to the course, follow Jesus, live pure and blameless lives in this dark age, because as you do, Paul says, I, the one who disciples you, will be able to look to you, this church, and say in front of Jesus that all of my running, all of my effort had not been pointless. It had not been in vain. He will be able to look at the Philippian church and say, a life that follows me, or the life that follows Jesus, that I have encouraged and that continues after I'm gone to follow Jesus, I'll be able to look at them and say, I haven't run in vain. I haven't done what I've done in vain. Guess what? That's true for each and every one of us. Isn't there something special? When you take someone and bring them under your wing and try to draw them close to Jesus... Not everyone is going to follow Christ. It is not a guarantee. Jesus discipled 12 people and Judas fell away. God was the perfect father and Israel did not continue to believe. But there is something special about when you have a child or a niece or or a friend that you have said, I want you to follow Jesus, and they do, that you say, yes, yes. Are you able to jump over the next several slides to there's a quote towards the end? I think there's a series of boxes. It's from Ed Underwood. I love Ed Underwood. And he says it so pointedly. He says, Believers I've discipled who walk with Christ are tangible evidence that I didn't waste my life. How powerful is that? We're called to not only take in. God invites us to form a legacy by pouring out into other people so that they will themselves follow after Christ. And there's something special about when you can pour into someone's life and they do, they chase after Christ. It's not going to happen with everyone and it's not, all, it's not going to be your fault if you disciple people faithfully and they don't. But when it happens, there is a joy in that, isn't there? There's a joy in that. Last reason why there's discipleship. You can go back to uh, the next slide. I want to talk about the difference between addition and multiplication. Addition and multiplication. Let's say that there are two guys in a town that want to start a church. 
And one of them is an excellent evangelist. And he can, he does, is able to bring people to Christ four times faster than the other guy who is just average at that. But the other guy has a method of he brings someone to Christ and he disciples them and, and develops them in their own life so that those people will be disciples who make disciples. And the other guy just loves to be the evangelist and bring people in. Let's take a look at what happens as you jump to the first generation. Discipleship guy only brings one person to Christ. The other one brings two in. It doesn't look like the other guy's doing very well, does it? You jump to the next slide. You see... The other guy's already got five guys that he has brought to Christ. Four other people. He's got a little church of five. He's doing pretty well, isn't he? Doing a lot better than the other guy by the outward looks of it. But the other guy hasn't grown at all. But what he has done is he has taken that person who he brought to Christ and he has helped develop them in their relationship with Christ so that now they are ready to go out. So when you jump to the next slide, those two guys are average. They're only bringing one person to Christ. But now there's two people that came. And the other guy, man, he's still doing better though, isn't he? His church is probably bigger. He probably is getting better. And as you see the next slide, they didn't get any growth over there. But up here, man, from the outside, this church looks like it's growing, doesn't it? Oh man, look how fast that growth is happening. But next slide, you'll see, well, this guy's only bringing two. Suddenly, this other church, the one that said, we're going to take time to take the people who have trusted in Jesus and say, it is not just my responsibility to teach and to draw people to Christ. It is your responsibility. As they catch that vision, suddenly four more people come. Oh, it's, it's a little bit different then. And you're not as concerned as in the next slide. You see that he brings two more people to Christ. Because next slide, bam, what happens? If all those people catch the vision and say, I trust Jesus, I know Jesus, and I am going to bring someone else to trust in Jesus because it's every one of our responsibilities, it just doubled in size. They're comparable now. And while, and suddenly, as you see, the next generation takes place, jumping again, man, how different is that? Jump to one more slide again, and then again. Tell me, if you will, which model is healthier for a church? For a church to say, pastor is the one that does the preaching. Pastor is the one that draws people to Christ. Pastor is the one that does all this. Versus a church where each and every single person sitting in a pew on Sunday says, it's my, my responsibility. I draw closer to Christ intentionally, on purpose, and then I draw other people closer to Christ as well. It doesn't matter if you're fast or slow. Guess what? Al, how many people are in here in this church today? 35. Imagine 35 people. Imagine 35 evangelists in this town talking to our friends about Jesus Christ. Where does the strength of the church reside? If you think that it resides in a single person, you are so sorely mistaken. The strength of the church resides in Christ, who is the head, working His will through you and you and you. And you, every one of us, 
That is where the strength of the church resides. This is the strength of discipleship. So let's jump to forward. Just a quick so what. So what do we do about this? We're going to talk about more in depth on the so what and how of discipleship next week. Please come back for that. We need to understand there's different kinds of relationships that Paul had. Paul had a relationship with Silas, a man named Silas, who was kind of his, well, actually Barnabas is what I should have said. Here, jump to the next slide. Barnabas uh, instead of Silas, who was kind of a co-church planner with him, who he had a great relationship with. But he also had a Timothy. And guess what? Timothy had a Paul. All three of these relationships are essential to our growth in Jesus Christ. All of them. You don't necessarily have to look for someone who can say, I am more mature than you in every single area. Or I need to find someone who is more mature than me in every single area. What we need to do is we need to say, who is your Paul? Who can encourage you in the faith? You might have an area of your life that you are struggling in. A specific area. I struggle to pray. I struggle to spend time with Jesus. I struggle to really understand the Bible or to share it with people who never knew. Find someone who has a strength in that area and say, will you come alongside me? Not necessarily even in all of my life. Just help me with this. Will you come alongside me and help me? You need to learn to be bold if you want to grow in your own walk. Not just to say, I sure hope someone will someday come to me and say, I feel God's laid it on my heart to disciple you. You've got to say, man, I have a lot of respect for you. Can I start meeting with you over coffee? Can we talk? Can we do this together? Be bold and find someone to come alongside you for your own growth. You also need a Silas, someone who you can come alongside of and just say, you know what, we're going to talk about life. We're going to talk about the scripture. We're going to understand the Bible together more deeply. Because if you only have friends that you hang out with and just say, oh man, isn't the political situation really difficult these days? Oh, I wonder what the weather is going to be like. If that is the extent of all of your conversations, you're missing out on the joy of being with someone that you can say, oh, life is really hard and I need someone to remind me that God cares for me. I need someone to say, to come alongside it. I can tell them what I've been learning from the scripture or, and they can tell me and we can help each other. I need someone. I need a, a Timoth, a, a Barnabas. Silas is a great guy too, but Barnabas is the classical person to look to. And then guess what? You need, you, you need a Timothy in your life. For some of you, that will be your children. Who you come alongside with and say, I am going to not just entrust my spiritual life to a school, my, my, my child's spiritual life to a school or to a church. I am going to invest in them myself. Your children. For some of you, will be your grandchildren. 
By the way, adult children need disciplers too. For some of you, it might be a niece. It might be a nephew. It might be a friend. You need a Timothy, not just for their spiritual health, but for your own. How many of you wish, wish there would be someone who would come alongside of you and say, will you just walk through life with me and teach me more about how I can trust with Jesus? Is there anyone in this room who is bold enough to say, I wish there would be someone that would come alongside me? Anyone? I'm seeing people of the whole age range. Man, there are people who need you to come alongside them. It is not an awkward thing to meet with someone and encourage them to draw closer to Jesus. You need a Paul. You need a Barnabas. And you need a Timothy. So what do we do? Think of someone and pray about them every day of this week. Every day. And then come back next Sunday and we'll talk more about what, how, the how of discipleship. So that we can be investing our lives in each other. Because this is what it means to be a part of the body of Christ. To understand better the love that Jesus has for us. And this is the same love that each and every week that we have been gathering here, we have come together and taken communion so that we together can look at one another and say, do you remember that Jesus died? That Jesus gave His life for you? Together when we take communion, It's not just something we do. God doesn't say, I love, I love Bill more because he took some bread and juice at a certain time. No, he doesn't. He loves you with everything that he has, Michelle. Adam, he gave everything he had for you. Every one of us, when we take communion, We're remembering the love of Christ. And as we take it together, we are together proclaiming His love. So let's remember that as we take communion today. Let's thank God as we take it and as we listen to the music. Let's thank God for Jesus' gift for us. And also for the way Jesus has used other people to pour into our lives so that we can trust Him more. Let's pray. Jesus, thank You so much for Your love for us. Your love that gave and gave and gave. Thank You, Jesus, that You did not just come and preach to masses, that You did not just come and tell people basic stories about You. You brought those 12 people under Your wing and poured Your life into them in a special way so that they would in turn pour their lives out to the whole church, but also to individuals that would be equipped to pour their lives into individuals all the way down to us. Thank you, Jesus, not just for dying on the cross for us, but for giving us this gift 
this opportunity, this grace of helping others to follow you. We remember you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.